truth was, these things matter. And it's no good pretending that any relationship has a future if your record collections disagree violently or if your favorite films wouldn't even speak to each other if they met at a party. Nick Hornby, High Fidelity. Welcome to Bookish, a literary podcast. I'm Paul, and I hope all of you are staying safe, staying well, and staying inside as many, maybe most of us, find ourselves with more time to read than we could have ever imagined. Today's episode was going to be a Tuesday ramble, and I swear when this chaos is over, I'll go back to a normal Sunday ramble. But in getting everything together, I discovered that I was rambling about a single topic. So I guess this is just a typical episode. In a proper Sunday ramble about a year ago, I ranted a bit about how much I hate top 10 lists. To recap and expand a bit on that original rant, I have a few main reasons for my distaste of top 10s, involving three areas of the arts. I hate top 10 movie lists because they almost always have Citizen Kane at number one. Orson Welles was great to be sure, Just check out The Third Man as an example. But Kane was simply two hours about a guy with a creepy relationship with his sled. Plus, we all know The Godfather is number one. When it comes to top ten lists in music, this is where I really tend to lose my shit. Music may be the most subjective of all the entertainment genres, and a song that you loved in high school won't mean the same to you at 40. My brother-in-law loves to make my head explode by sharing lists of the top 10 Springsteen songs that include at least six from the Born in the USA album, an album that itself barely cracks my top five Bruce albums. Besides, any list of top 10 songs is really a list of top nine because it's already been decreed by God himself that Born to Run is the greatest song ever. If you disagree, feel free to take it up with God. Finally, My aversion to top 10s springs from many of the top 10 books lists. I know, finally it gets to books. These lists tend to be the most diverse and yet most predictable. They fall broadly into three main categories. Lists that feature books considered classics that few people read but think must be included for the list maker to look intellectual. This type of list always has no books published after the invention of the automobile. Lots of Austin and Dickens and Bronte. The second type is a list that features the great unreadable books. Again, to show off how smart, cool, etc. the list maker is. Books like Infinite Jest, Gravity's Rainbow, and Ulysses always make the top five here. And number three, lists that are clearly tilted toward the compiler's personal tastes. These range from one I saw recently that asserted of the top 10 books ever written, six were by Russian authors, to ones that have Tolkien titles occupying the top five slots. Now don't get me wrong, none of these lists are bad in and of themselves, and most include excellent books. But they would be better named My Top 10 Books at This Moment in Time than Top 10 of All Time. None of the myriad lists I looked at in preparing this episode can rightly be called top 10 ever for one simple reason. 
none contained, the sun also rises. The novel in which Hemingway literally changed the way we write novels. Feel free to fight me if you disagree. So why am I revisiting this topic at all, if my attitude toward top tens is so strong? Well, maybe I'm becoming less grumpy in my old age, which is unlikely. Or maybe the lockdown has addled my brain, very likely. But lately I've been rethinking the value of top ten lists, especially for books. I grew up watching David Letterman, so it's only natural that a top ten list be part of my DNA, like it or not. I also realized that one of my favorite books, and favorite films as well since the adaptation was excellent, is High Fidelity by Nick Hornby. It's hard to completely hate top 10 lists when one of your favorite novels was essentially about top 5 lists. So today I'm breaking with tradition and giving you my personal top 10 book list as of this moment in time. One or two will drop off or reappear over the years, but it's pretty set in stone at this point. Consider it my Desert Island Coronavirus Lockdown must-have library. And also consider it a recommended list for you as you're stuck inside. Also, please note that a book's position on this list will change over time as well. Here we go. Number 1. The Razor's Edge by Somerset Maugham I imagine you long-time listeners expected a Hemingway title here, but you'd be wrong. This time of this classic is one I've given away most over the years. And, I mean years, as I've reread it every year since 1985. That's 35 years and counting for you math challenge readers. It was written in 1943. It's set in the period between World War I and the Great Depression, and is as current and relevant as if it was written yesterday. Go order a copy from your local indie bookstore today. Number two. A Movable Feast by Ernest Hemingway. This one just narrowly edges out The Sun Also Rises as my favorite by Papa, mainly because I have a fondness for Paris in the 20s, books that look inside the mind of a writer, and Sylvia Beach, the owner of Shakespeare and Company Bookstore, who gets an entire chapter in the book, and also Hemingway's highest praise. In it, he wrote that, quote, No one I ever knew was nicer to me, end quote. Number three, The Shadow of the Wind by Carlos Ruiz Zafon. This incredible novel by Spanish author Zafon, the first in his four-part Cemetery of Forgotten Books series, holds the distinction of being the most sold book in my late great bookstore, and also the one that I read in the longest uninterrupted stretch, roughly 280 pages in an overnight marathon. It's gothic. It's Barcelona as we'd want it to be. It's got books at its center. It's lovely. Number four, The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway. You knew this was going to make it, so I won't say a lot about it. Many critics think that both A Farewell to Arms and For Whom the Bell Tolls are better Hemingway novels. To that I simply say, isn't it pretty to think so? Number five, Book to Die by John Dunning. Now, an egghead literature professor would scoff at including a bibliomystery, the finest bibliomystery ever written, by the way, on this list while leaving off better-known classics, Bronte, Austin, Dickens, etc. And they're completely entitled to their erroneous opinion. If you love books about books, mysteries, or simply great writing, 
This one's for you. A hundred years from now, it'll be ranked with Hammett's Maltese Falcon and Raymond Chandler's The Long Goodbye. Number six, High Fidelity by Nick Hornby. This one's just a lot of fun. And as a contemporary of Hornby's, age-wise at least, I get what he's saying. Even if you're not a contemporary, you will too. And don't you just love the quote at the beginning of the episode? Number seven, The Bible by various authors. No, I'm not about to go all televangelist on you here. But the Bible is literature. Just see my early episode about this. And more importantly, it's great storytelling, totally apart from the religious aspect. A woman drives a tent peg through a general's head. A prophet calls on bears to maul a bunch of punks. And a demon whips ass on seven would-be exorcists. It's part literature and part supernatural episode. Number eight, Less Than Zero by Brett Easton Ellis. Now this may be the most controversial inclusion on this list, especially if you only know Ellis from his novel American Psycho or the film version of the book. Less Than Zero is no less troubling in many ways, but it's a compelling read and nothing like the shit movie version. Excellent performance by a young pre-Iron Man Robert Downey Jr. notwithstanding. I read it at 19 in one sitting, had never read anything quite like it, stylistically and otherwise, and still haven't. Number 9, 84 Charing Cross Road by Helene Hamp. It doesn't get much less, less than zero than this. If you love books, and especially reading other people's mail, this brief 1970 gem is for you. Number 10, The Angel's Game by Carlos Ruiz Safan. So how does Safan get two books on the list when Bulgakov, Dumas, and others get shut out? Well, because not only is the second book in the Cemetery of Forgotten Books series as good as the first, and I know this is not a commonly held view, it's about an author's descent into madness better than even Stephen King ever wrote. As a writer, I dig that. Number 11. Yeah, I said 10, but I'm listing 11. That's because looking back over the list, I can't exclude a novel that, while not my all-time favorite, is perhaps the finest ever written in the English language. That novel is F. Scott Fitzgerald, The Great Gatsby. If you only read it in high school, or only read the cliff notes, go back and read it again. It also happens to contain the best last line ever written. So that's my list, and I'm sure I was barely halfway through before you started arguing with me. And maybe that's the best thing about top 10 lists. They get us thinking about what we consider great books while exposing us to others' ideas as well. Stay safe out there, keep on reading, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Bookish hope you found it both informative and entertaining. If you'd like to keep episodes like this coming, I'd also like you to consider supporting us by clicking the support this podcast link on the anchor site. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can keep episodes like this coming and also help us get to the point 
where we're completely ad-free. Thanks again.